Welcome to the Tiny House Summit. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'm here with D. Williams and J.W., or Jonathan Williams. Dee built her first tiny house in 2004, making it as green and lean, it's only 84 square, square feet, as possible. In 2016, she decided to downsize even further, going from tiny to tinier, uh, at which point she gifted her house to her nephew, J.W. The new tiny took the spot of J.W.'s quote-unquote big tiny, and she continued to live in the same yard, happy as a clam. D and J.W., welcome to the summit. Aloha. Thank you, Ethan. It's good to be here. You're welcome. Yeah, it's great to have you. So um, D kind of needs no introduction. I think that I would be I would be shocked if anybody listening didn't hadn't at least heard the name D Williams. But JW, you're uh, a lesser known uh, kind of character in in all this. So can you tell us a little bit a little bit about yourself? Yeah, certainly. And I think I actually kind of like being a lesser known character. Uh, okay. you know, D's pretty larger than life and I like to fly under the radar. Yep. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, uh, I live in Lander, Wyoming right now. I've been mm -hmm. uh, living in D's old tiny house, now my home for, uh, I guess, six years. I was doing that math. Um, I'm about to turn 30 and wow celebrating that birthday in the tiny house. And uh, it's been, I think, a pretty uh, magical journey that has been filled with uh, some really hard and also like really beautiful moments of living in that tiny house. And when I, you know, I think what it sums up to me is like when I first moved in, it felt so D-like to be in that space. Uh, yeah. And, you know, she's pretty forthcoming with how connected to like the natural world and community that she felt in that space. And it was fun to, you know, initially step in there, see the space that was built for someone that's five foot four and, uh, you know, have to like stoop as a six foot one human climbs in there. And then what felt, you know, like D space has very much so transitioned into what now feels like my space. And uh, I'm excited for the next time D can visit so she can see all the nicks and what i call improvements what she might not call improvements and when she can come and check out how i've made this myspace too um and it still is such that footprint of d on on all all surfaces and all all parts of the house nice. awesome so d um when you built your house in in 2004 did you did you envision ever not owning it or did you envision ever passing it along? Uh, that's a good question. And, and to be honest, I think by the time I finished building, I had like two brain cells left, <laughs> you know, the building yeah. process itself was just like, ah! yeah. so um, as far as thinking forward, you know, while I was building and even as I was looking for a place to put it and, and what that would look like, I, I really wanted to remain flexible, you know, and I was like, it's an experiment. If it doesn't work, then I'll come up with a plan B, you know, I'll figure out something else to do. And uh, so as far as, you know, gifting it forward, you know, it, it really never came up, not for 12 years. Yeah. And then I was feeling a little bit like I wanted to change. Jonathan, you were, you were just getting ready to go on a, was it before your bike trip? 
that it we was, talked it about. It was before I, I did this, ended up being like a 6,000 mile bike trip in Mexico, uh, down to Argentina. And, um, and it was right when we started that conversation when I had fewer worldly possessions than ever before. <laughs> Uh, and I was like, oh, that sounds pretty nice. Let's talk in six months when I'm back, uh, is how I remember that unfolding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jonathan had lived in a, uh, a tent. He's a raft guide in Colorado. Mm -hmm. So he'd been, you know, this was yeah. an upgrade. This wasn't mm -hmm. downsizing. This was like scarier than anything else on the planet for him to assume responsibility for this giant chunk of wood. It's a very you large know? tent. It's a very, it's the nicest <laughs> tent I've ever stayed in. <laughs> um, well, that's, that's so interesting. I want to, so briefly, um, can you talk about your bike trip? Because I, building my tiny house was also preceded by a month long bicycle tour. Oh, and that like really catalyzed it for me. I'm so glad to meet a fellow tour. Uh, yeah. And it was this thing, which, uh, I think it was probably certainly the most epic thing I've ever done. Uh, and at the time it was when there was a lot of like negative border rhetoric, uh, kind of near 2015, 2016. And, uh, our goal, we kind of formed this little, I don't know, like pseudo nonprofit was to humanize the unknown and tell stories of humans and people in our experiences without any sort of like political agenda, but also in the backdrop mm -hmm. of, uh, the global South is a scary place. And yeah. at the time, we kind of like leveraged this bike tour as a stunt to raise money for a Habitat for Humanity um, Okay. in our like hometown, uh, kind of like in Iowa, Wisconsin area. And um, yeah, just kind of in some ways, it just kept growing from there and ended up being wow. this hugely successful, really fun, powerful trip. Uh, raised some good money, like couldn't quite, we were hoping to buy this lot for a new home and in this town and we like came a little short, but we got pretty close to buying uh, property for this new habitat for humanity home, which is just like home building charity. Um, and I think as a 20, I think I was maybe 22 at the time was, I think felt like a, a powerful experience. And then to go and see, um, you know, such different uh, cultural and economic uh, ways of life than what we have in the U S was just like this wildly formative journey, if you will, that then somehow culminated in me upgrading and uh, very quickly uh, starting to explore what having a little tiny home felt like. Cool. Very cool. So um, Wyoming is quite a different climate than, uh, <laughs> than the Pacific Northwest. And um, <laughs> I would imagine that some of the changes that you've had to make to Dee's house are are kind of below the skin changes or or maybe not. But can you can you talk about maybe some of the challenges, uh, what you maybe learned the first winter you spent in the house and and what you've progressively done to to kind of make her more cold hardy? Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. More cold hardy. Um yeah, I think first and foremost, like my first two winters in the tiny house, I operated pretty much on a same system as what D had installed that worked really well in the PNW, which was the the Dickinson propane heater uh, and and bundling up. Uh, I, I think, I, yeah, right. Is that the, that was the strategy, and it worked well. Um, 
And, <laughs> and I guess also, you know, when you were living in the PNW, if it ever got super cold, you in theory could plug into the house and maybe run like a space heater. I don't think you ever mm-hmm. necessarily needed right. to do that, but um, maybe that was an option. I don't know. It was, a, it was an option also because my, you know, in the winters in the Pacific Northwest, it's like very little um, energy charge from right. the solar panels. Mm. You know, right. it's dark and dreary. And all you want to do is like stay home and eat cheese and go to sleep. So you want to hibernate. Yeah. Um, which you know, I, I know this sounds like, oh, the Pacific Northwest in the winter, it's so dark and drab, but it's nothing compared to Colorado in the winter, uh, which is what Jonathan set himself up for. And uh, hardy soul, man, that's all I can I think say. I, I will take the title of hardy because I survived, but I will also take the title of like completely <laughs> naive and having no clue what I was getting myself into. <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. and at the time when I first moved in the tiny house, winter was coming, I was going to be ski patrolling at Monarch mountain. So going up to like, uh, you know, I think the the summit of that area is like 12,000 feet each day to ski and was living in Gunnison, Colorado, which is one of the colder spots in the lower 48. And Mm -hmm. I think in January we got down to, when I looked it up, it was somewhere around negative, negative 38, 39 degrees. Which in the tiny house context, when you only have that Dickinson heater that is made for uh, considerably warmer climates, like, you know, I would have my glass of water freeze as I'm, as I'm sleeping at night and little ice crystals growing in on the door. Uh, and was, it was really fun when I got the house up to a little over 50 degrees. And, um, <laughs> and I learned a lot. I think I learned a lot of like humbling things of like what it feels like to be a human in this world when like heat and security and home is like questionable on a day to day and what it feels like to go to the laundromat and actually feel more like comfortable and safe than I did at home. And I think it was like, I mean, it was like a literal bucket of cold water. Uh, And I also think like this, like truly humbling, powerful experience of feeling connected to like my own humanity. And I think that was actually a, a, a good experience that I never under any circumstance want to do again. Um, and, and I will say like, since that point, I have completely figured out the heat question in living in several different mountain towns in the West, now Lander, Wyoming, um, where it's super windy and also can get pretty cold at times. And that was combining essentially the Dickinson propane heater with a, a cubic mini is the company. Um, it's the cub wood burning stove. And mm-hmm. I will say it is the smallest, most adorable stove on the market, uh, in my opinion, <laughs> and uh, can make it so I can like lounge around in like my underwear throughout cold mountain winters. And then when I go to bed, I'd like kick on that propane heater and it's totally sufficient yeah. to keep me warm through the night. And I think, you know, to underscore that, like the, the largest difference that I've had, and, and I think I have from a lot of tiny house dwellers is um, in each of my living situations, I've been a hundred percent off grid and at least a football field from the nearest outlet. And so, uh, I'm still balancing, uh, an off grid solar system, but as we all know, like solar, it's actually really, it, it's really energy intensive to generate heat via, uh, solar and having a battery setup that can, that can accommodate right. that. And, um, the, the two heating systems that I figured out have, have worked phenomenally and make that space feel really uh comfortable and safe and and now i feel like i'm in this like little mountain cabin 
uh, they can can weather some serious storms. That's awesome. So wood wood plus propane is giving you the BTUs that you need to stay warm. Yeah, and I and I think if I was connected to a grid, I'd go with like a mini split system. But uh, yeah, totally off grid. Those two, like the propane and wood, are like infallibly reliable. And I like having two heating systems when it is negative twenty, and that is still my home, and I still have a job. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I have, you know, company coming over. It's like nice to offer a space that's more than 45 or 50 degrees in, in temperature. Exactly. Some, somewhere where people... And Jonathan can load the little stove okay. with pieces of wood this big. Walk, 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 load. Walk, 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 load. Right. Well, <laughs> what do they say? Uh, wood burning stoves warm you three times. Yeah. Once when you cut it, once when you stack it, and once when you load the stove. <laughs> A hundred percent. So, um, you, so you mentioned your off grid system. Um, do you were off grid in, in, in the Pacific Northwest, but with a smaller array, right? Yeah. And you know, the, I had two panels, so a, a 200 and I think it was 240 watt system, very small. Just enough to, I didn't have to run that much. A couple of lights, my laptop, mm -hmm. um, that was really pretty much it. Yeah. You know, charge my phone kind of stuff. But Jonathan totally knocked it out of the park and took it to a whole nother level. Because um, you can, Jonathan, you have like a refrigerator, an air conditioner. You can charge your car. Yeah, I can. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, I have a. Uh, I was really motivated by having ice cream and it took me four years to slowly build out the system to Frankenstein <laughs> it together where I could have a freezer and a, and a small fridge. And then, nice. you know, once you get the ball rolling and you learn how to DIY your own solar and you're like, holy smokes, this stuff is becoming really affordable. Um, the, the biggest challenge is, is the battery storage um, and, yeah. and the biggest hurdle. And, and I think now there's like some great stuff out there with like the inflation reduction act that actually, incentivizes you purchasing batteries, which wasn't available when I was doing this, um, okay. even in off-grid applications. But uh, yeah, I just like started beefing up the solar and then I had to like go back and beef up the inverter and then buy some more batteries and like kept expanding the system. And, and now on a sunny day, I just like what I consider like, uh, you know, lots of times when you, if you're, you know, the sun's shining down, your solar panels are generating a ton of energy and you need that energy of like somewhere to go. Um, and I ended up getting this like plug-in hybrid car and mm -hmm. use it as like the place where when otherwise I wouldn't be able to like harness this extra energy on days when I don't need the air conditioning unit, but it's still sunny outside. There's still a ton of energy hitting those panels and figured out that I could just slough this extra energy like into my vehicle and then turn that into real miles that I'm driving. And it became this like fun experiment of like, what else can I power with this solar setup it's like on a good day like how do i like keep like changing my way of being so that it's run off of the sun and you know actually i think my first purchase though was an electric chainsaw and i was so impressed that then i did the plug-in hybrid car and it's just nice. like you know this isn't a huge system and it's all like you know i set it on the slowest charging speed but when you're there all day like it, the, the miles do add up and um it, and, it, and it works and it's just like funny little system yeah, so what uh, I think that that you shared a slide 
uh, a slide deck with me that that kind of lists all the things that you run off of off of that system. And I'll, I'll just read it out because I think it's kind of awesome, which is a car, refrigerator, an air conditioner, an air purifier, Instapot. Woo, big fan. Yeah. Chainsaw, lights, and laptop. Yeah. And, and I will say it was impressive that D in the Pacific Northwest with how cloudy it is could get could even power her laptop off of how much smaller her solar array <laughs> which buying that back in 2006 was that, like it was a good system uh yep. and i yep. you know it it was it was fun to build off that system um so d in your original design there there is a sleeping loft um and it's uh it's kind of, I'm going to say it's a classic tiny house loft in the sense that it's like, it's very triangular shaped. Um, so the wall, you know, the, the ceiling comes all the way down to the floor. Um, JW, you already mentioned that you're, you're like a little bit taller than D. Um, and so <laughs> <laughs> did you, do you use the loft as your bedroom or have you reconfigured the sleeping arrangements? What's, what's funny is that loft has worked flawlessly. Uh, even for okay. a six foot one human, uh, I can, I've had company over and it works splendidly. We'll just put it that way. Mm -hmm. It works. It's, it's super cozy. It's something I've never thought twice about. Uh, nice. the interesting thing though, with the tiny house is as I've moved through like different life stages, it actually is something where you also want to host people and not be like, Hey, we're basically camping in the, the tiny house loft together and mm -hmm. DIY a little, um, kind of like conversion, uh, converted the bench that's downstairs into like a fold out bed and has made it now so that I can host people in a hundred and I guess if you count the loft is 128 square feet, it's 80 square, 84 square feet on the lower level. Um, and, uh, that's kind of been a game changer for hosting. It actually feels like to me, it feels like two separate bedrooms when you're upstairs, yeah. you have like your own space. And, and then people downstairs can do their thing and wake up on a different schedule as you. Um, and I think it's just like the, the more you can make that space, uh, kind of modifiable as you go is, has been huge for me. And, and D you, you actually could fit on that bench downstairs, which is why I think it wasn't an issue for you. Is that right? Yeah. 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 I mean, it was 24 inches wide, so it was plenty wide for me to sleep on. Uh, and long enough for me to sleep on. But, you know, a part of the reason I wanted to move into a smaller space is that I didn't want to have to navigate the ladder forever, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, I've had health issues at different times and it's just like, I wanted everything on the same floor, you know. Um, I loved the sleeping loft and it was mm -hmm. actually my favorite place in the whole house. Uh, it's got that skylight right over it, and you can see the ever-expanding universe. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it was truly wonderful. But I, I also kind of, you know, as I've aged, you know, there are times that I don't want to have to navigate the ladder. And Jonathan, you learned that super early on in, oh, yeah. in living in the house too, didn't you? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, sometimes I think I blot that out of my memory. But yeah, I, in my second year in the, the tiny house, I ended up, getting into a ski accident where I fractured a couple of vertebrae in my neck and Ooh. uh like figured out ways actually to get up and down that ladder after spending a few weeks in the hospital and um and staying at like a in a, at a friend's place for a while and mm -hmm. 
it is, there is this like question of, you know, it, we're pretty fortunate to be able to nimbly climb up and down ladders. And like, even to this day, I'll still like sling my dog onto my shoulder and carry her up. And nice. like partly like building that downstairs, um, pull out bed was this like little resilience piece of, Oh, right. When you have, uh, you know, the five day flu or an injury or, you know, someone old comes and visits you, you can put them downstairs and, or, you know, you're too tipsy to climb up the ladder safely. And, yeah. uh, yeah, man. Yeah. It, it does feel important and puts into perspective just, yeah. How lucky we are to have, to have our, our health when we do have it and how quickly that can change. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just the, the adaptability of, of tiny houses. I think that there's, there's something about, about them or, and maybe it's beyond that. They're just small because yes, they're small. And so they're, you know, there's less to change if you need to change it. But I think that there's also a real element of ownership of your space and design and kind of so many people who are building their own tiny house or working with a professional builder are really getting to make decisions about their space that, that most people don't get to make. You know, you just, you kind of buy a house, you rent an apartment and sure you pick the one that you like the best, but you're not usually going into it with this, this idea of like mm. customization and making it for me. Yeah. And I, I, D, I'd be curious for your thoughts on this. I mean, I, I certainly think that like that attitude of resilience and adaptability that is like ingrained in the tiny house ethos is, is I think becoming more and more important in our world uh, as, you know, even yesterday, uh, Lander was getting rocked by really bad wildfire smoke uh, from some fires in Idaho and Montana. And it makes me realize like how uh, capable a tiny house is, is actually to adjusting to different changes to an environment. If it got yeah. bad enough in Lander, I could literally like, go rent a pickup truck and drive back to Iowa in two days. Uh, and, or I could, uh, you know, keep messing with the solar system so I could have that mini split so I can run an air conditioning unit so I can close my windows and run that air purifier and uh, respond to a, a West that's on fire right now. And I think, yeah, uh, yeah this piece of, of res like climate li resiliency in a tiny house is something mm -hmm. that um, I think more and more people are going to be looking for when they want to have security in home and place might be changing with that. Like I, there's this weird phenomena in the tiny house when you I've moved several times and it's strange to open the front door to a new landscape, but still have my same home that I was in. And it's in some ways when I'm in that home, like all of those places are still connected to me just outside the door. Um, yeah. And anyways, I, I digress, but uh, this like climate piece has been something I've been mulling over a lot with a tiny house yeah. um, and what it, what it, what it enables. Yeah. That's a really great point about the resiliency of tiny houses in, in my own experience. Um, you know, I've always wished that I knew, I wish I knew what I know now about, you know, building science and thermal bridging and all these things and, and could have made my house feel a bit warmer in the Vermont winters. Um, 
and I, I haven't yet added like a wood stove. So now you've got my, <laughs> my gears turning about that. Um, did you have to do any other like deeper changes? Like, did you in, have to add insulation anywhere or do anything like that? Um, you know, to kind of beef up the house? I actually think, uh, you know, apart from the door, which I added in uh, essentially an additional foam layer and then uh-huh. like refinished it and added on a new uh, kind of like outer sheath on it uh, to more or less double its thickness. It's an interior door yep. that I think deep plucked out of a, a refuse pile, a dump, dumpster. Yeah, dumpster. Yep. And uh, uh, I had to do that. And it's, it is, I will say it's surprisingly well insulated. Um, like it works, nice. especially when you can crank the heat with your little wood stove. Uh, yeah. like, yeah, I stay comfortable and it was just figuring out what were the different, uh, the different suite of options that I needed. And, and, and what's inter- I like the first winter I skirted the tiny house, which supposedly can help quite a bit. And since then, uh, it's just been an extra expense that I haven't gone through. And I think that would help from what I've heard. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's just something I haven't done. Ethan, is that something you do in Burlington? So, um, tip for you. Um, so I also used to skirt the tiny house with hay bales mm. and it was always a mess in the spring kind of dealing with them. And so I realized one winter that like we get enough snow usually that you can skirt it with snow. And so that's what I have oh. been doing. I essentially, um, hope for a good November and December of snow. And then you essentially just, the snow actually slides off my roof and kind of starts the process for me. But then you just, you get your (laughs) shovel and you, you kind of pile up the snow and um, you know, usually by December I can have the house kind of skirted with snow and, and snow as, as a Knowles instructor will can probably tell you is a, is a wonderful insulator. So I love Um, the idea of digging your house in. Yeah. That sounds awesome. I'm going to take yeah. that tip. <laughs> now, unfortunately, like our winters, the last couple of winters have been less reliable. So like, <sighs> I, I'm not sure what I'm going to do this winter. I've, it's, I've just resisted wanting to like build those, like, you know, like go and buy some plywood and get some foam insulation and like cut custom skirting and kind of really do it up. Right. Um, I just don't want another chore Yeah, that, that happens twice a year, but. Um, the snow, the snow skirting is helpful. Yeah. D, you probably couldn't ever do that. You don't, you'll just get like a big dump every so often, but you don't ever, you never maintained any snow out there. No, not really. But you know, yeah, the, the insulation, same thing, uh, you know, as far as thermal bridging, I didn't really think about that when I was you know, building the floor into the trailer and stuff like that. So there was just a, you know, the suggestion of insulation in the floor. And that's, that's really where you lose most of the heat, you know, in a, in a regular envelope, in a regular stick built house, you'd think you'd lose a lot of the heat that's generated that you're pumping into the space through the attic. But in a tiny house, it just gets sucked out the floor Mm -hmm. unless you have adequate you know, thermal breaks and, and insulation. Uh, and Jonathan, I think from what I remember, you you end, ended up putting some sort of padding down on the floor to yep. try to kind of boost that insulation on the floor, right? Yeah, and, and I, I guess I uh, now that I think about it, I did two different things. I put, which, I put two-inch foam board 
uh, in essentially like the the trailer, they almost look like the, like floor joists in between there. Okay. I think there's so much thermal bridging that I right. don't think that was actually effective. That was uh, a younger version of me that thought that would help. And I don't know if it, I don't think it hurts, <laughs> but I don't think it helps as much as when I, um, I put like a half inch foam pad down and, and more or less like in the wintertime, I lay this like woolen rug uh, in the main hallway uh, mm-hmm. and that alone, along with the rug in the kind of like main living area, uh, dramatically changed my heat loss through the floor. And then, um, partly the way that I, you know, so it's, I have that there throughout the winter. And then once it starts getting warm out where I want my feet to be cooler, I like roll that rug up and just like shove it outside in my little storage unit thing. Um, yeah. and that's been a, a system that is so easy and has, has dramatically helped. Uh, keep heat in the house and it was simple and beautiful um yeah and, so a two and, and inch just foam cheap. pad with a rug yeah oh yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah it, and it and it worked great yeah that's awesome i mean i think you know this for the summit i've kind of been you know really sticking to a topic for these talks and i i think that um i love I love that this conversation is a little bit more, more meandering and kind of more wide ranging because I think that the, the overall lesson here is, is just the, that I'm taking away at least is kind of the resiliency of tiny houses and, and kind of the changeability and hopefully a message of empowerment that now that the tiny house movement has been around for, for, you know, almost 20 years, there are a lot of tiny houses floating around out there and, and you could end up with somebody else's tiny house instead of a brand new one. And just, you know, knowing that, that there are things that you can do to kind of make it yours and make it feel, feel more like home. You know, Ethan, you bring up a good point in that, you know, the, the thing I've said for a long time, and I think Jonathan lives this way too, is just that, you know, I think culturally we have a tendency to to want things to be perfect. Mm-hmm. We want to be super warm in the winter and never be miserable. We want to be nice and cool mm-hmm. in the summer and never miserable. Mm-hmm. We never want to be miserable in our relationships. So the idea of living in somebody's backyard sounds dicey, uh, you know, scary. Uh, you know, we want we want things to be easy, mm-hmm. um, and and they rarely are. So it's like the building process. When I started that process, it was imperfect, you know, and living in the backyard was imperfect. The house is imperfect, but I'm going to give all of that a good solid B, a B average. It's not an A plus. It's not an A. 80% of the time, you know, I think the house was warm enough, beautiful enough, accommodating enough um, to fit a normal person's life. And I think once we start to kind of shed that expectation that, you know, Jonathan's inheriting a house that his old aunt, old brilliant (laughs) aunt built, um, once he was able to get over the fact that it wasn't perfect, uh, and it, I don't think, Jonathan, I don't think you went into it thinking it was going to be perfect, but, you know, you also don't want to be miserable. And you've just done a great job of, of kind of embracing the imperfection and, and how things can be perfectly imperfect. You know, I, I just am inspired by that, not just in how you live in the tiny house, but 
just kind of how, how you walk through the world. It's, it's good for me to see that. Well, I, I certainly had a good role model for that D. Yeah. Yes, you did. Truly top tier. And, <laughs> and, I, and I think I went through a similar arc as people that build their own tiny houses. I moved in with like all the hopes and dreams and like having heard the D story, I got to hear it firsthand as she was doing it. <laughs> and then um, you move in with all these like, oh, I can't wait for my life to finally feel fulfilled and to feel connected to like nature and like hear the birds more clearly and have more time. And then certainly yep. my arc took me to <laughs> exhaustingly cold kind of feeling isolated and then like anything in life um water glass frozen yeah exactly yeah yeah the, yeah <laughs> my glass was half frozen yeah and uh uh you know the tiny house didn't doesn't bring me doesn't make me a happy person and but what is interesting is that there's like ways that it's helped me move through this world that have like with uh like retraining my brain of how to find joy and those are like lessons that I've learned within this tiny house space uh, that have made me a, a better, more well-rounded human as I like move through my own journey. Uh, and yeah, there's that realization piece. I think a lot of people when they move into a small space do have. And then I think that's when the real work begins is like when the tiny house starts working on you. Uh, and you have, to, you have to realize that right. you like need to let go of some stuff. And <laughs> Man, I think just four days ago, I had my power go out because I forgot to unplug something on time and was having a, a little date night that just went dark and we, we lit a candle and it was perfectly <laughs> wonderful. It was special in its own way. Date night goes dark. Yep. <laughs> Well, I've really enjoyed speaking with you both. Um, I think that this is going to be a really fun session for people to to watch and and kind of ponder. Yeah, let let folks know if they want more information about insulation and thermal bridging uh, and stuff like that. Just have them email me. Um, I'm happy to get information to folks about kind of what I've learned. And Ethan, I know you've learned a ton yeah. over the last, you've been in your house for what, 15 years? Uh, no, not that long. I built it in 2012. 20 2012. years, 35,000 yeah. years. I actually built it when I was born in 1985. No, um, <laughs> and there's actually, um, there's a session all about thermal bridging um, oh, taught cool. by Isabel Nagel Bryce, who um, her company's called a tiny good thing. And she, since building her tiny house kind of went on this journey and became a, a passive house certified and a sustainable building certified professional. And she consults with people specifically on mitigating issues after they come up and also help consult on designs to, to help kind of prevent some of those issues. Awesome. Yeah. So there, there's going to be a whole session on it. <laughs> 